0: Chapter fourteen of the Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy This Librivox recording is in the public domain Chapter fourteen That Lady Is Not Now Living The livid, monotonous London winter had worn itself out and spring was coming again. Jim Conrad continued to meet his two friends now and again at the Voyagers Club. Rose talked incessantly about the scheme he had in preparation and in which he proposed to enlist the services of conrad but jim did not yet know in the least what it was all about and sir francis seemed to wish to convey to him each time the idea that the moment had not yet quite arrived when the seal of secrecy might be fairly broken jim waited without impatience He would have been glad to get a chance of some stirring part to play which would take him out of England and out of his recollections, and might give him a hope of writing a rattling story, and so opening up a literary career. For he began to think of late that he had not the imaginative faculty which could construct a story all out of his own head, as the children say he began to fear that he had not even imagination enough to construct a story out of a text supplied to him, for look at the discovery of the castaway ring. Surely there were men and women who, if set down to make a story out of that theme, as a teacher of painting puts his pupils to work each and all on one given subject, would each of them, within a limited amount of time, make a story which could solve the enigma in some striking and plausible way each giving it a different interpretation, and each interpretation commending itself to a different order of mind. But Jim had tried to make a story, any sort of intelligible and coherent story, out of the ring mystery, and had failed. It is all to no purpose, he began to think. I have no imagination. I have no invention. I must give up the whole idea of storytelling, or go and find some adventures that have simply to be written down and made to glow from first sight with their genuine surroundings and atmosphere. Perhaps I ought to give up the business altogether. But I will not give it up yet, he said to himself doggedly. I do believe I have something in me, and anyhow it is about the only thing I have to live for so he longed to be sent on some perilous expedition anywhere, and although he could not quite make out what Sir Francis Rose was doing in the expeditionary way, he was still most anxious to get a chance of proving that he could do something brave and clever. One morning, as he was consuming his early tea and toast, he got a letter from Sir Francis Rose. It was dated from a flat in the near neighborhood of Berkeley Square Berkeley Square has of late been much invaded by the piles of red-brick flats its Aristocratic pretensions are rudely shadowed by these huge and aggressive structures Populous enough or at all events trying to be populous enough for a city insular of Imperial Rome Young as Conrad was he could recollect a time when the Builders' flat had not yet profaned the immediate neighbourhood of Berkeley Square. Even at that moment the thought crossed his mind, but he had other things of greater import to think about, and so he let it cross and go its way. He opened the letter and found that it was a pressing invitation to come to luncheon that day, they two alone, to talk over a matter of some importance, perhaps to both of them. Jim thought the matter over for a moment or two, then decided to go, and sent off a telegram to announce his acceptance of the invitation. Then he strolled along Piccadilly to St. James's Square, and he had a look-in at the Voyagers Club to read the papers. There were not many men in the newspaper room, and he had almost his pick and choose of the papers. He took up the latest Galignani, and was turning it over rather apathetically, but still with a sort of idea that he might find something there about the movements of certain vanished friends of his, when his eyes rested on a paragraph which made his heart and his throat swell. It was this. Death of a Beneficent English Lady Our readers will grieve with us to know of the death of that most generous and beneficent of English women, Mrs. Morefield, widow of the late rochester moorfield of moorfield hall shrewsbury and formerly of moorfield lodge south kensington london the fame of mrs moorfield as a benefactress belongs not only to england but to the northern and southern shores of the mediterranean on the riviera in southern italy in sicily in egypt in algeria her philanthropic exertions were well known and thoroughly appreciated She had given public parks to crowded neighbourhoods, she had founded colleges for the teaching of girls, she had provided playgrounds in quarters alive with poor children, and all she did with a quiet beneficence which shrank from making itself known. Mrs. Moorfield had long been in delicate health, said to have arisen from lung troubles and heart troubles combined. She had for many years been compelled to pass her winters abroad. She was lately staying at a villa which she had taken just outside algiers on the way to Beaumandrie's when she was attacked by a sudden faintness and expired almost without warning her daughter Miss Gertrude Morefield and a young lady a close friend of the family were with her when she died it is assumed that Miss Morefield will be the sole heiress of her mother's great wealth Jim put down the paper and he could not help feeling as if he should like to shed tears the news gave him a terrible shock which was rather increased than made less by the formal stereotyped manner of the newspaper announcement he had from the very first been greatly charmed by mrs morefield her sweet and lucid nature had a great attraction for him he always thought he could see quite into her kindly, forbearing, and loving temperament. He had watched with a really tender interest her anxious care of her daughter, her fear lest her own ill-health and her enforced absences from London might become a weariness to Gertrude. He had observed how she watched for any indications of weariness or discontent on the part of Gertrude, As another anxious mother might look out for the warnings of incipient consumption on the cheek or the lips of her only daughter. He had noticed, too, the sort of sweet, unconscious rivalry that seemed to be going on between mother and daughter. The struggle of the one to find out, the struggle of the other to conceal any, even the faintest, suggestion of dissatisfaction with the mode of life which the health of the mother imposed upon them in an early chapter of this story it has been said that on this kind of observation conrad soon made up his mind as to the natures of the two sweet women and every day and every hour he had spent with them only deepened his conviction and now gertrude was alone in life now she might go where she pleased there was no longer any motive for that sweet and loving self-sacrifice Oh, how well he knew that she would miss even that very self-sacrifice! How well he knew what a delight it was to her to make her mother believe that she cared nothing about London and nothing about England or about home, lest the fond mother might reproach herself with being even the innocent cause of the daughter's frequent expatriation. His eyes were dimmed as he thought of that girl left alone without the mother for whom she lived in some picturesque dreary intolerable moorish villa outside algiers dreary and intolerable in the shadow of that death but hardly more dreary and intolerable than any other place in all the world would be just now he knew she would not be alone not all alone clelia would be with her but lover though he was He could not bring himself to believe that the companionship even of Clelia would be as much to Gertrude as it would be to him. Still, it was a relief to know that Clelia would be with her, that Clelia would stay with her, that Clelia, having known misery herself, would understand how to succour the miserable. A keen pang of pain went through him, "'as he remembered what things Clelia had said to him about Gertrude "'and about Gertrude's care for him. "'And he had, for a moment, a wild thought of hurrying off "'to the southern shore of the Mediterranean "'and taking Gertrude's hand in his "'and telling her that some day he would try his best to make her happy again. "'Why should he not? "'Clelia could never be any more than his friend.' and she had told him that she would be his friend none the less if he were to marry Gertrude, why should he not? Alas, he could give no reason why, except that he had rendered up his heart to a woman who could not marry him, who could not and would not allow herself to love him. Conrad was certainly not ungenerous or selfish. His love troubles seemed for the moment of small account when compared with the bereavement of poor gertrude morfield he remembered the kindness sometimes almost motherly with which mrs morfield had always welcomed him he remembered how lonely and unhappy he was when she and her daughter were cast like sunlight across his darkling way and hot tears of gratitude and of grief came into his eyes He read the paragraph in the paper over and over again, as if he could spell some sort of indirect consolation out of its journalistic English. Then he remembered his engagement to luncheon, and he had a moment's thought of sending a wire to say he could not be there. "'But to what avail?' he asked himself. "'Had I not much better go through my common work of life as though nothing had happened?' What good would it do to poor Gertrude Moorfield, crying over the body of her dead mother, to know that I, in London, stayed away from a business luncheon? Will they, will either of them, write to me? he wondered. Will they leave me to know nothing more of this than I have learned from the newspaper? Just now, of course, he could not expect Miss Moorfield to write. But would Clelia not write? Alas! there is much selfishness in love, be the lover as unselfish as mortal man can be. It did send a thrill of warm hope through Conrad's heart, the thought that Clelia might at such a time as that make up her mind to write to him and tell him everything and ask him for his friendly counsel. Would they go, these two young women, alone, as Clelia had once predicted, out of the range of civilization, out into the social wilderness. Should he henceforth never more have sight or hearing of them, of either of them, of her, of her? He could not think it, he would not believe it. I shall see them again, he said almost aloud. I shall see her again, he whispered to his own heart then he pulled himself together and he took up his hat and went forth determined to be to all appearance just the man he was before he opened the startling newspaper whatever the speculations in which sir francis rose was just now engaged they certainly would not have appeared to be altogether unsuccessful in this their early stage of progress The flat which Sir Francis Rose occupied was part of a house which stood at a corner of the street, bulging and asserting itself into aggressive red-brick prominence. Furthermore, when Jim Conrad came to the door and got out of his cab, he found a man in livery standing on the steps, white marble steps, quite outside the threshold, and not at all waiting to open the door who asked him if he was not mr conrad come to see sir francis rose so jim not in a mood to be much abashed by this elaborate preparation declared that his name was conrad and that he had come to see sir francis rose then the outer man the man in the uniform rang the bell and when the door was opened by the liveried menial common to the whole building he announced that this was Mr. James Conrad come by appointment to see Sir Francis Rose, whereupon Jim was consigned to another official who was charged with the business of escorting him into the presence of Sir Francis Rose. Jim might, perhaps, have been more impressed by all this arrangement if he had not gone into the club on his way and seen the account of the death of Mrs. Moorfield. As it was, he could hardly manage to fix his attention upon anything. He was ushered into the lift, although the whole of the dizzy height he had to scale was but that of two flights of broad, shallow marble stairs. He was then shown into Sir Francis Rose's study, and received a warm greeting from Sir Francis Rose himself. "'I'm glad you're punctual,' Rose said, glancing at the little clock that stood on the chimney-piece. "'I think I am always punctual,' Jim said. "'We North Country men are. It is in our blood, I fancy. "'A Southerner, especially a Londoner, never is punctual. "'He couldn't be even if he tried. "'And, of course, like a sensible man, he doesn't try, "'knowing full well that he can't do it. "'Men should never try to do what they know they can't do. "'It only bores them and their fellow men. "'Don't you think so?' Well, I like to try to do things. Ah, yes, because you can do them. A sweet silvery chime as of tiny bells was heard. It sank into the room. It tinkled on the tufted floor. That's for lunch, Sir Francis said. I got that chime of tiny silver bells from one of the confiscated convents in Italy. I bought them for a mere trifle. "'I hate gongs and harsh noises of any kind. "'Come, let us have luncheon.' "'With a wave of his hand, "'he gracefully motioned Conrad towards the corridor "'and then to the dining-room door. "'Nothing could be more exquisite "'than the quiet ornamentation of the room "'and the look of the table with its flowers, "'its fruits, its silver, its glass and its china. "'Jim had usually a good appetite,' but to-day could not greatly enjoy his lunch. "'You have a capital cook, Sir Francis,' he said for that very reason. "'I can't help wishing now and then,' Sir Francis said, with a tone of genuine yearning in his voice, "'that they would invent a new meat or two and a new wine or two. Curious, isn't it, that invention is limitless in every other way,' "'except in the matter of food and drink. "'I find the old foods and drinks fairly good,' said Jim with a smile. "'This fillet steak is excellent, "'and that frozen salmon seemed to me a dish fit for an emperor, "'and I don't find any fault with this very capital claret.' "'No,' Sir Francis said with something like a sigh. "'I fancy, at least I hope.' that these things i offer to you to eat and drink are fairly good in their way but why can't we have something newer and more original why not rather stick to the whisky you're used to asked audacious jim quoting from a popular music-hall song ah but there it is i hate getting used to anything or perhaps to put it more frankly and correctly I ought to say that when I get used to a thing, I begin to detest it. I get to hate the joints and the cutlets and the steaks and the chops and the salmon and the entrée and all the rest. I am tired of sherry and claret and Rhine wine and champagne and port. I want some new sort of drink, new and original, don't you know, in its very idea. ''Can inventive science really do nothing, do you think?'' ''I'm afraid I haven't turned my attention resolutely that way,'' Jim answered. ''The fact is, I don't think I ever saw the wine that I couldn't drink and enjoy if I were in the mood for drinking at all.'' ''And all sorts of meats. Beef and roast mutton and that sort of thing. Boiled beef and carrots. You should see me when I'm a little hungry. "'Again you are to be envied,' Sir Francis said, with once more something like a sigh. "'I always crave for something new. "'I have tried horse-flesh, of course, but there is nothing really new in that. "'You get as much used to it in a week as you do to boiled neck of mutton, "'or any other utterly uninteresting and unpoetical abomination.' and you know i rather enjoyed myself during the siege of paris i was quite a young fellow at the time as you may imagine and i was with my father he took it into his head to see the whole thing right through and i was of course only too delighted it seemed to me as it would to most young men the most charming thing in the world to be a besieged resident but my poor father although he stood out to the end with all the pluck of a Northumbrian rose, was terribly distressed by the food, the goats and horses and dogs and cats and rats. Even then I quite enjoyed the novelty of the sensation, the dining off a cat and supping off a rat, and wondering what you could possibly get for breakfast and dinner the next day. But, of course, one was young then, And as we get on in life, we grow corrupted, and we only like dinners when they are good. Jim suddenly awoke from a silence. I hope you will excuse me, Sir Francis, if I seem a little out of sorts today. The truth is that just before coming here, I went into the club and took up a paper, and there I saw a scrap of news which very much distressed me. My dear boy, I am so sorry. "'Nothing serious in a personal way, I hope. "'No, not in that sense. "'The death of a dear friend.' "'Oh!' Sir Francis spoke in a tone of relief. "'But who is dead? "'So much depends upon that. "'Not she, I fondly trust.' "'Alas, there is no she in that sense,' Jim replied. "'No, it is nothing of the sort.' Only a dear old lady of whom I had come to be very fond. Well, well, old ladies must die, my dear Conrad. And I fancy your life will go on much the same. A near relation of yours? Oh, no, merely a friend. Ah, yes, well, that's all right. I mean, that is not so bad. You will soon get over that. Yes, I dare say, but there are other lives very dear to me that may not rally quite so soon. Jim was more than half conscious that in thus giving way to sentimentality in the presence of Sir Francis Rose, he was making himself somewhat ridiculous, but he could not help himself somehow. His heart, according to the old saying, was in his mouth. Other lives. Oh, yes, was it her mother my dear sir francis as i have said already there isn't any her or she or however you like to put it but this dear old lady and she wasn't very old either who has just died was the mother of a great friend of mine and the friend of another there was a moment's pause then rose spoke in his low clear voice i think you are to be envied conrad to be envied on the whole "'I do indeed. "'I have been turning it over in my mind for this last minute or two, "'and I have come to the conclusion that you are really a man to be envied.' "'I hadn't thought it,' Conrad said rather depressedly. "'It had not quite occurred to me. "'Would you mind telling me how and why I am a man to be envied?' "'Well, if you ask me, this is my idea.' "'The ordinary man is wholly wrapped up in himself. "'Nothing matters to him that does not concern himself. "'The misery of a whole continent is of no concern to him "'if it does not happen to touch any interest of his own. "'You see.' "'I don't know that I do see. "'I don't believe that it is so.' "'You are still so young,' Sir Francis said with his very sweetest smile. "'Still, I don't quite see what your point is.' "'My dear boy, I am making no point. "'I am only telling you that you are very much to be envied "'so long as you can feel troubled about the concerns of other people.' "'Yes, but that is what I don't see,' Jim said almost sharply. "'I fancy most people are sorry for the troubles of their neighbours. "'But suppose they are not, generally. "'Why should a man be enviable who is?' Is it not merely adding the troubles of others to his own? My dear boy, not at all. Don't you see that all through life... Well, of course, you have not got very far through life. All one's own affairs are more or less bound to go wrong. The more you succeed, the more you want to succeed. The higher you climb, the higher you pitch your standard of climbing. The more sensations you gratify, the more you want to gratify every blockhead of us is in his little way an alexander and the more worlds he conquers the more he wants to conquer now you see what i mean don't you no i can't say that i do any clearer than before jim somewhat doggedly replied not really well i'll explain my idea is that a man's heart and soul or what we have agreed to call heart and soul are as a common matter of fact bound up with his own affairs very well then i take it to be a common matter of fact also that a man's affairs almost invariably go wrong with him how come now jim protested yes they do yes they do you see as i said before the more success a man has the more he wants to succeed and what does that mean Why, what can it mean but failure? You make three millions. You want to make five millions. You don't make five millions. What is that but failure? Still, you have the three millions. I know. But you wanted the five, and you have failed. And there you are, the possessor of three millions, eating your heart out, because you are not the possessor of five. Now, I have put this allegory of millions to you as the most practical and intelligible way in which I could express my ideas. But I may say that I do not myself so much care about the millions themselves. I have tried for money, gambled for money, won money, lost money, made vast sums, spent vast sums. But I have not cared very much for money as money all the time. "'No? Then what did you care for?' Jim asked with a somewhat languishing interest. "'His heart was in the coffin there, not of Caesar, but of poor, kind, sweet Mrs. Moorfield, "'and he must have paused till it came back to him. "'I cared for new sensation, my dear Conrad. "'I think nothing in life is real but sensation.' I want to feel my blood dance racily through my veins. I don't—honestly, I don't—see anything else in life but that. Well, I haven't asked you here to tell you all about myself and my cravings after new sensations. My dear boy, I beg your pardon." "'No, no, don't beg my pardon,' Conrad said. "'It was I who began the whole talk. And I was interested ever so much in what you were saying. "'But what I don't understand, and what you haven't quite explained, "'is why it should be an enviable thing for me "'that I should feel the troubles of other people added on to my own.' "'No, don't you see?' "'Not a blink.' "'Well, well, how very odd. "'And you are a poetic and imaginative sort of young fellow. "'Don't you see that if a man's own affairs are bound always to go wrong, At least, to go comparatively wrong, it must be a great relief to him if he can have his attention drawn away for ever so little to the troubles of other people. That is the reason why I often envy the men who, like you, are so much more sympathetic and philanthropic and all the rest of it than I am myself. The troubles of others are some distraction to you. I am very much afraid that they are none at all to me. "'I am afraid,' said Conrad, somewhat wearily. "'It is of no use arguing the matter over. "'And anyhow, I am sorry I bothered you for a moment with my troubles, "'although I don't believe one little bit that you are nearly as indifferent "'to the troubles of others as you make yourself out to be. "'Oh, well, if it came to helping people and giving them a lift and all that,' I don't think I should be altogether wanting. No, I am sure you would not. But even then, do you know, I think it would be in great measure the virtue of the new sensation, or perhaps the relief of getting rid of them. Let it be what it will, Jim said somewhat more cheerily than before, so long as the helping hand is given. "'But there, I don't want to worry you with my personal or my indirect troubles any more. "'Indeed, I should never have said a word about them, "'but that I was afraid you might think I was down in the mouth, "'perhaps about something which I could not put into outspoken words. "'But of course I could not expect you to enter into my troubles. "'I don't suppose you ever heard of the people whom the troubles have hit most nearly, "'and because of whom the troubles are a concern to me?' "'Exactly. There it is.' Sir Francis Rose remarked, in the tone of one who thinks that the whole question may now fairly be allowed to drop. When one does not know people personally, it is very hard to feel any interest in their troubles or their joys. You walk down to your club, and you see the bills of the evening papers, and you read in big letters, GREAT CYCLONE ON THE MALABAR COAST, LOSS OF FIVE THOUSAND LIVES. Hurricane in Madagascar, one thousand inhabitants homeless. "'And who cares about all that? "'If one had ever seen or known any one of the fellows, "'he might perhaps care. "'Although, to speak the honest truth, "'I don't think the knowledge would do more "'than to give him a keener interest in the event, "'and therefore, in the frank, true sense, "'to make him the more glad that it had happened.' Do you follow me? Jim shook his head. No, he had not been quite following him in the sense of agreeing with him, but he had been listening to him with a certain awed curiosity. He felt that there was much ghastly truthfulness in what Sir Francis Rose was saying, and the admission that there was so much horrible, inevitable truth mixed up with it only made it great upon his nerves all the more. These friends of yours, friends of the dead lady, I mean, whose troubles you make your troubles, were they men or women? Women, said Conrad, two young women, one the daughter I spoke of, or did I, another her close friend? Yes, well, I dare say I never heard the name of either of them. I don't suppose you ever did. Then don't you see how hard it would be for me to be sorry for them by any extreme of possibility i could only be sorry for them because you were sorry for them and on that principle our good friend waley ought to be sorry for them because i was sorry for your being sorry for them and our silent friend in paris marmaduke coffin ought to be sorry for them because Whaley was sorry for my being sorry, for your being sorry, for their being sorry. And so it goes on, like the ripple on the beach that is tossed off at Liverpool, and goes on to New York, or breaks at San Francisco, and melts on the shore of one of the Sandwich Islands. My dear boy, that is not the sort of sensation which, according to my idea of things, makes life worth living. "'All right, let it pass,' Conrad said, with a certain feeling of self-reproach, because he had inadvertently started the subject sacred to him, not knowing whither it was to lead, or indeed that it was to lead to anything. "'You were talking of some scheme you wished, or should I say were good enough to tell me of.' "'Yes, yes. Let us leave speculation and go to business.' End of chapter 14